Welcome to another episode of the Human Rights Podcast from the Irish Centre for Human Rights at NUI Galway. Today, we're so fortunate to be joined by Sive O'Neill, a political theorist and PhD candidate at University College Dublin. Sive is also a lecturer there in environmental politics. She's here to join us for an event that will begin shortly after this podcast in the Olamaxaman NUI Galway. It's the first in a new series of public lectures on climate justice that are co-sponsored by the Irish Centre for Human Rights and the Ryan Institute at NUI Galway. Sive is a spokesperson for Friends of the Irish Environment, an NGO that has recently taken a number of court cases to do with the environment and climate justice. And last week, there were two significant judgments and Sive's going to talk to us about those. Friends of the Irish Environment is also part of the Stop Climate Chaos Coalition, which works on policy issues in Ireland. And Sive, I hope, will be able to talk to us a little bit about what Stop Climate Chaos has been doing recently. Sive's also a policy advisor to the Independence for Change group in the Oireachtas, and she works as an advisor in that capacity also to the Joint Oireachtas Committee on Climate Action. Sive, thanks so much for coming and joining us on this podcast. Thank you, Maeve. It's lovely to be here. Can I ask you um, how you came to be interested in this field of environmental politics, what your background is and how you got to this point? Well, I've been involved in environmental politics and activism in one capacity or another for nearly 30 years now. Uh, When I was a student myself, I stood in the local elections. This would have been in 1991 fair bit away and I was elected. So I was I served five years as a Green Party councillor in Dublin City. And um, so when I left, it was partly a kind of a slight bit of youthful frustration with the burdens of public life. And I just wanted to go off and explore other things. I got quite involved then in advocacy and I worked for a number of environmental organisations. I was convinced at the time that there was a limited role that being an elected representative uh, could could do. You could uh, you were very limited in terms of your budgets and your capacity, especially at local level in making decisions that would really improve environmental quality. And at the time we were starting to campaign on global environmental issues, you know, deforestation, climate change and and uh, but also a lot of local issues were coming to light, road developments and lots of other issues around uh, agriculture and um, GMOs, for example, was a big thing in the late uh, 1990s. So I was involved in campaigning on some of those. Uh, they seem to be the, the current issues of the time. And, you know, it was a time when environmental groups in Ireland were just getting going, getting off the ground, building support, building their memberships and communicating their message through the media. So between one thing and another, life takes takes charge. I, I ended up working for a number of years as an environmental awareness officer then for a local authority. And then after that, I decided to go back into to college and take up a master's in public policy and uh, philosophy. And then from there, decided to pursue a PhD in um, political theory and climate justice. So, you know, in the context of my academic research, then it brought me back after uh, some absence due to family reasons uh, back into the world of activism because these issues became so prominent uh, following the publication of a series of IPCC reports and then, of course, the Paris Agreement. So when I was in UCD preparing my proposals for research, you know, it was around the time the Paris Agreement had been adopted. And I decided to look at some of the uh, ethical issues around carbon trading that were implied by one of the articles in the Paris Agreement. 
And, and of course, that gets you straight back into the actual politics of it as well. And can you tell me a bit about your voluntary activism then at the same time? Well, most environmental groups in Ireland are very small and, and most of the work that's done is done on a voluntary basis. Um, so the reason I got involved with Friends of the Irish Environment, because I've always been involved in a few different organisations at different levels, at local level, sitting on SPCs, for example, or, you know, different, different environmental bodies at national level as well. But what, what got me involved with Friends of the Irish Environment was actually a case that they took last year against the uh, additional runway that was proposed for Dublin Airport. And I, in the context of my research, was looking into the particular ethical dilemmas um, around aviation emissions because they're not regulated at all um, in the same way that other emissions are. They're not really counted properly. Uh, it's treated as a bunker fuel, so it's listed on the inventories but no one country is really responsible for any, um, any particular share of it in, in, in terms of domestic policy obligations. And of course, only a tiny percentage of the world's population flies, and usually in the global north, but also, you know, globally, it's the richest, uh, you know, 10% of the population, or even less than 10%, the richest kind of 2-3% of the population that actually do the flying. So there are different issues that arise when you look at attributing responsibility for aviation emissions than, than you would normally um, apply in the case of um, other types of emissions. Um, so aviation emissions that are consumed by the elites, that you know, the global elites don't actually contribute environmental, sorry, or economic benefits in the same way that other emissions might be arguably contributing to some sort of economic welfare. So I was interested in the particular um, challenges of, on the one hand, reducing emissions from aviation. It's contributing at the moment about 5% of radiative forcing. So it is a small but growing share of their climate problem. And the idea of building an additional runway and, you know, the latent demand that would be generated by that to me was absolutely abhorrent. So I got involved with the case and um, we lost that case. But of course, it did result in a very significant judgment, which we'll come back to, I'm sure, when we talk about the climate case, because in his judgment, uh, Judge Max Barrett acknowledged that there was an unenumerated right to an environment consistent with human dignity and well-being in the Constitution. So he read this right into the Constitution without it being written down explicitly. And of course, that's very significant. Now, we still lost the case. But the fact is that sometimes litigation like that, even when you lose, can, can yield some very significant legal results that have yet to really work their way through uh, the system in terms of the implications of that. Great. I'm really looking forward to coming back and talking about that case um, and the cases that flowed from it and that Friends of the Irish Environment took later. Before we get into that, I wonder if you'd mind maybe jargon busting, acronym busting and helping our audience for example, people who really are coming to climate justice issues, the call for climate action, environmental issues for the first time, if we could go back and if you could give us a sense of the trajectory of the different international agreements, starting with the UN Convention, the Framework Convention, and then right up to the present EU agreements on the scientific I suppose, the conclusions of scientists and what is required of states. 
Okay, I'll try to be very brief because that's actually a huge topic in itself. Um, I suppose most people consider about 1988 to be the beginning of it. This was the year that James Hansen gave evidence to Congress and he had to do so in a personal capacity because uh, his employers, NASA, weren't really happy with him speaking on their behalf. So there's quite an extraordinary moment, if you like, when he comes into Congress and addresses them and tells them that climate change is really happening, that human activities are contributing to this change in the atmosphere. And that if we continue to release greenhouse gas emissions, they're having this effect of of trapping heat and, uh, you know, creating changes in global climate that will be very severe the longer we continue. Now, in fact, the science behind the greenhouse effect is well established. Uh, it's been well established for over 100 years. Um, it's, so it's not that the physics of the process uh, are, are in dispute at all. Uh, so there was a long period where the fossil fuel industry tried to distort the science and try to obfuscate, you know, the efforts of Congress to do something about it. Um, but in the end, the the statement by James Hansen led to a, a, a very important conference organised by the World Meteorological Association. And then they set up the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Ch- uh, Change. And that is a peer review kind of process that evaluates all the available science, pulls it together, and then governments sign off on the summaries for policymakers that are produced every every five years or so. And to date, the IPCC has produced five um, assessment reports, each of them becoming much more um, convinced, if you like, that the degree of consensus around the basic science is up to like 97, 98 percent around all the understandings of the climate effects of greenhouse gas emissions. And there's always some debate and, uh, you know, differences of opinion around the modelling, you know, as to the effects it will have on the climate um, and different pathways towards 1.5 or 2 degrees and so on. So there's still a little bit of sort of scope for disagreement and so on, but it represents a huge degree of scientific consensus. Now, so following the establishment of the IPCC, we had the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change that was adopted in Rio along with the Rio principles um, and the you know whole approach to sustainable development. So the UN Convention, which is universally accepted really by all governments, um, recognises that climate change is a serious threat and that states must do all that is required to prevent dangerous global warming. However, it didn't impose any legally binding obligations. They didn't come until the Kyoto Protocol was adopted. Um, Significantly, the convention recognises the importance of developed countries taking the lead and that, um, you know, developing countries must be assisted with finance, with technology and with capacity building efforts in order to ensure that they are allowed to improve the, the economic situation without generating more emissions. So there was a a recognition of the global justice dimension of climate action. The fact that most of the emissions not only come from developed countries, but come from historical emissions from industrialized countries. So, for example, even though the EU's current global share of emissions on a flow basis is quite small now, it's obviously overtaken by China, the US and India quite dramatically. But historical emissions from the EU count for a very significant share of all the cumulative global carbon dioxide emissions. And that matters because carbon dioxide effectively stays in the atmosphere. So that historical responsibility means that developed countries particularly need to take the lead. And that was reflected when the Kyoto Kyoto Protocol was adopted in 1997. It set, you know, quantified limitation objectives for Annex 1 countries. 
And that meant that, you know, Ireland, for example, had a legally binding obligation to reduce emissions uh, over a particular commitment period by, I I think we were allowed increase in the end up to 13% or something like that. But in the effect, the EU bubble had a commitment to reducing emissions. The Kyoto Protocol was a very important milestone, but it ran into a lot of political problems, as we know, because once George Bush was elected, he you know, refused to ratify the protocol. Canada had recently discovered the tar sands in Alberta and having originally signed the protocol, then pulled out of it, realising that it was never going to be able to stick to its commitment. And the protocol was never, in fact, put into effect until Russia uh, agreed to uh, ratify it. And that was the trigger that allowed it to come into force. And of course, Russia only signed it because they were uh, allowed membership into the WTO. So you had all these kind of trade issues creeping into the politics at international level. In the end, it's reckoned that the Kyoto Protocol probably resulted in very modest emission reductions. But by the time that the commitment period was coming to an end, they had started negotiations on a new commitment but there was all kinds of wranglings and problems and the EU did commit. And this is significant because this was around the time the fourth assessment report had come out indicating that global warming was a much more serious problem than, than, than it previously envisaged and that developed countries would have to reduce their emissions by up to 40% by 2020. So the EU committed initially to 30% if other countries would do likewise. But of course, they, they didn't make those um, commitments. So the EU then watered down its commitment to 20%. And this is where we're at then for 2020, that the EU commits to reducing emissions by 20% by uh, 2020. And it was recognised around this time, this would be in the early noughties really, that there was definitely a need for a a mechanism that would involve all countries because in the Kyoto Protocol, um, China and India were not obliged to reduce emissions at all. But it was obvious that the uh, huge economic engine that was, um, you know, taking force in China was going to generate lots of emissions. And you'd never get the United States to sign on to anything unless China and India were included. Now, India's per capita emissions are very, very low. They're only about two tonnes of carbon per person, if that. But the Chinese emissions per capita are closer to the EU average. So it seems reasonable to look to a new instrument that would place obligations on every party. That was attempted in Copenhagen in 2009, but it failed dismally. It was a kind of diplomatic failure as much as anything else to, to get it over the line. And in the end, we had to wait another six years before an agreement was signed in 2015 um, at Paris. And that was a very historic moment. It was the first time there was a, a kind of united, concerted commitment to holding global warming to below two degrees and ideally below 1.5 degrees. And that commitment was supposed to be then reflected in nationally determined contributions. So each country would make a voluntary commitment to reducing emissions in line with that target and, you know, you know, subject to their capacities and the responsibility for historical emissions. But of course, what happened is that none of the, the collective commitment simply isn't going to be anywhere close to what is required to achieve the Paris goal. So, um, so now, you know, we, we're, we're, we're waiting here in Ireland, but there's a, a summit taking place in New York where the UN Secretary General called member states back to the UN saying we need much more ambitious action. What you've committed to doing so far is simply not enough and we need you to ratchet up your ambition um, for the next period. And that's happening today. 
that's the happening this week yes summit. yes yeah so this talk of um commitments even watered down ones by the eu brings us i think quite well to the case that friends of the irish environment received judgment in from the irish high court last week can you explain what okay. that case is all about so the case was very much uh, inspired by the phenomenal um victory by the urgenda foundation in the netherlands so um, Urgenda, this was around the time of the Paris Agreement actually, had taken a case against the Dutch government claiming that its plans for reducing emissions were not in line with the Dutch civil code and human rights law. And they successfully took their government to court and won. And this was extraordinary. No case had ever been taken and it still hasn't actually. Um, that had re- you know, resulted in a victory you know, for the environmental group concerned. And what's even more significant is that the Dutch government appealed it and the appeal court then decided that not only was the district court decision correct, but it, 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 was, in, it was incorrect in not re- reflecting human rights dimension to the argument. So the appeal court in the Netherlands recognised that under human rights law, under the European Convention on Human Rights, Articles 2 and Articles 8, the Dutch government had a duty of care towards its own citizens and that it had to take much more ambitious actions to reduce emissions in the short term by 2020 than the government was proposing. It was a novel legal argument that was used. They were using tort law rather than, if you like, administrative law or public law. And uh, it's not easily transferable to other countries. But the Urgenda decision did spark a wave of similar climate cases around the world. And the Irish case is, is one of those. Now, for a variety of reasons, it was decided in the Irish case that we would try to imitate the Urgenda approach to building a public campaign. So Urgenda had taken the, the case with 900 co-plaintiffs. They were trying to make the point to the court that they weren't taking it for themselves. They were taking it for the Dutch citizens. So they invited Dutch citizens to be co-plaintiffs. We couldn't do that in Ireland, but we did invite members of the public to sign a petition um, claiming that the case was being taken in their name. And we got 18,000 signatures in the lead up to the case. The other thing that was slightly different about our case is that we decided to challenge the National Mitigation Plan. So this was a plan that the government had prepared under the 2015 Climate Act. And the plan was supposed to put Ireland on a trajectory to a low carbon uh, transition for 2050. And we argued in the courts that this, uh, the adoption of the plan was unlawful and that the court should uh, quash it and require the government to go back and start all over again. So we weren't looking for any specific measures because we recognised that that would interfere with the separation of powers. We were asking the courts to simply quash the plan on the basis that it did not reflect the latest scientific evidence and it didn't respect human rights law. Unfortunately, though, our case did not succeed. We, we had four days in the High Court last January and we got our decision last Thursday also to a packed court. It was quite extraordinary to see all the people there. There's a huge amount of public interest in the case. And I think there was a lot of hope and we hoped certainly that, you know, a victory would would force the government to, you know, take another look at its climate plans and really um, take a much more ambitious approach to climate action and reducing emissions. But we'll have to see now if there's going to be another stage to this. And that case where you were challenging the National Mitigation Plan, you were arguing, if I'm not mistaken, that it actually didn't comply with the 2015 Act. Could you tell us a bit more about that 2015 Act, the domestic Irish legislation that you were saying the plan wasn't in compliance with? 
Yes, this is an interesting point and there's a lot of detail in the judgment about this, the difference between the plan and the act. So we were arguing that the plan that was adopted by the government didn't do what the act required the government to do. Um, so under the legislation, the uh, government is supposed to have regard to a, a range of things like, um, you know, the e- economically viable cost effective options and climate justice and um, new technology that might come on stream. But it's kind of couched in a fairly vague way. So our our point was that the, the plan as adopted simply wasn't consistent with the scientific evidence. And unfortunately, we, we lost on that. But I, I think, and this is just a personal opinion, that speaks as much to the deficiencies of the legislation in not being very explicit about what the government is required to do. And the standing issue, you mentioned that the situation for Friends of the Irish Environment was different from Urgenda. Urgenda was able to bring their case with co-plaintiffs, whereas Friends of the Irish Environment had to bring it on its own behalf. So were you happy with the judge's approach to Friends of the Irish Environment standing in the case? Yes, absolutely. This was actually a very critical point. Um, Even on environmental law issues, standing is often a very difficult uh, barrier to access to justice. For instance, as far as I know, there are some restrictions being introduced now in planning law that would prevent people who are not directly affected from by a particular development from making certain kinds of appeals. Um, so there's there's a lot of barriers and it can be they can be subtle barriers like the amount of time available to lodge an appeal or a judicial review. You know, the days of the week that you have to do it on kind of subtle barriers in place to access to justice. But the, the issue is that you can't even make the case unless you have locus uh, standi before the court. And it was always going to be difficult for Friends of the Irish Environment, which is a body incorporated in as a company limited by guarantee. So it's, it, you know, who is entitled to take the case to say that my rights are being infringed by the government's plan? Very difficult to make the kind of causal connection between a piece of paper adopted by the Oireachtas and, you know, flooding or some sort of terrible event that might or might not affect me 30 years down the way. So um, th- this issue of causality and locus standi is, is, is a very significant barrier to these types of cases. And um, in the end, what's very significant about our case is that the judge acknowledged that we not only had had a locus to take the case against the plan, but we also had it to take the uh, constitutional point, which is very significant, even though the, the judge did not flesh out in detail what the significance of the airport runway judgment is. He recognised that it was there and that we had the right to challenge the the, the government on this point. And that previous runway case is, of course, the case where the courts in Ireland found that the concept of dignity underpinning the Irish constitution, generally the personal rights provisions in the constitution, actually gives rise to an unenumerated right to an environment consistent with human dignity, which I think gave a lot of human rights lawyers in Ireland a real boost to see it, that actually the whole area of unenumerated rights under the Irish constitution, the notion of dignity is actually still one that is flourishing. Um, The other, of course, big um, issue which uh, was decided by reference to dignity in the last couple of years was the right to work for people um, seeking asylum. So I think those two decisions, the environmental one and the right to work case, really um, did make people feel that the what 
might have been seen as an era of judicial activism in the realm of unenumerated rights isn't necessarily over in Ireland. Mm, mm. Um, I think it's worth maybe briefly mentioning that you had another judgment last week that was in your favour um, for Friends of the Irish Environment. Could you describe briefly that judgment? Sure. Um, well, most of Friends of the Irish Environment's litigation has been in relation to planning and environmental law. And we have a particular set of complaints relating to the enforcement of planning law on um, peat harvesting sites. Now, these would be privately owned land, not board Namona land, and they'd be on smaller sites generally. Now, sites that, uh, that are greater than 30 hectares, in my understanding, are required to have both an EPA license and planning permission. But anyway, there was issues around identifying owners. We did all kinds of surveys over the years. We asked local authorities through the planning law, you can use a Section 5 kind of process to determine whether planning permission is required or not. And in the end, with a long, long story really behind it, um, these cases ended up in the High Court. And following a judgment last year, I think it was an interim judgment, um, it, the government introduced a set of statutory instruments that basically exempted uh, peat sites of greater than, or was it less than 30 hectares, uh, from having to have planning permission. Um, but this, we argued, wasn't consistent with um, the rest of the environmental law covering those types of activities. So these were brought again before Judge Garrett Simons in the High Court and uh, he struck down the SIs in question. Now, the significance of that is that we need to harmonise all our legislation so that we protect nature. We enforce the Habitats Directive. We use the EIA procedures correctly and that they apply to all instances, you know, that they should apply to. But significantly, bogs are particularly important in a climate uh, scenario as well, because bogs, if you like, are reservoirs of, of carbon. So once you drain them, dry them out or harvest the peat, uh, you not only lose carbon to the atmosphere, but if the peat is then burned, it's also contributing to more greenhouse gas emissions. So there's been a couple of very significant decisions in the past few months relating to peat and uh, Abor Panola, for example, um, refused planning permission for the Eden Dairy Power Station, not just on the grounds of imported biomass not being sustainable, but also on the grounds that it simply wasn't environmentally sustainable to, to burn peat as well. So the future of the commercial bogs in Ireland is, and it's, it's good news that the, the, the future is very much in doubt. So these bogs that were subject to the cases that we took last week were mostly being harvested for horticultural purposes. That would be like peat compost and also mushroom compost that's used widely and even animal bedding. So when there was a drought last year, there was a real shortage of animal bedding and there was a lot of peat harvested and used by farmers instead instead of whatever they usually use. So the... um, so this, this, this type of legal action is also very important. So, we, you know, you have the kind of grand, kind of very ambitious um, scope of the Urgenda type case and the climate case. But you also have the kind of run of the mill environmental cases that are very, very important. And you can start to you can see that the courts are now starting to see the connection between the climate uh, issues and nature protection. And once we line up those priorities, uh, the law will be a much better friend to the environment and it will offer more protection. But those are very significant judgments. Uh, it's certainly a blow to the government. They will have to go back and um, consider how to write up the legislation correctly. And um, obviously it does spell the end for some types of uh, uh, commercial harvesting of peat. And, and that is a good thing. And 
what is your view of how well the government is dealing with or what the principles are that should apply to the human impact of needing to change how people do things, how people make their living? Well, the, the first thing I would say there is just in principle, climate justice means a safe climate. So the most important thing we need to do is protect our atmosphere from greenhouse gas emissions. We cannot speak of global justice or local justice if we keep burning fossil fuels. So that's the first thing. And the second thing is that if we're talking about a just transition, it also needs to happen in a timely manner. So we can't use climate justice as a reason to keep bogs open for harvesting or to keep coal flower plier stations up and running. That's a distortion of the argument. Climate justice means keeping it in the ground because all our futures depend on it. And yes, we do have complex distributive and political issues to work out. There are difficult trade-offs to be made and we're entering a period where there'll be many of these happening simultaneously. Um, But they have to happen. There is no alternative. We don't have any kind of technological solution that can allow us to continue burning coal and trapping the carbon dioxide. And in the case of bogs, they're not just a reservoir for carbon. They, They are very important habitats. So we don't do ourselves any favours by arguing that it is unjust to, to keep, to, to close the bogs. Um, very, very few people are benefiting financially or by way of employment from those commercial harvesting operations. On the board Namona sites, um, there's a much better recognition there of the need for a just transition. And there are some important measures being taken now to ensure that the workers will have some kind of transition to different types of employment. So in the Joint Oireachtas Committee, for example, we had proposed, um, or the members of the Oireachtas had proposed, a just transition task force that would be led by NESC and an appropriate agency to kind of pull all the different elements together. And that would seek ways to reskill the workers and possibly even in home retrofitting, for which there'll be a huge um, demand for labour and skills in, in the coming years. And um, so there, there's a lot more people affected by the, by the board Namona and ESB uh, closures than would be affected by the horticultural peat. Just uh, before we finish, it'd be great to know a bit more about the um, Stop Climate Chaos Coalition that Friends of the Irish Environment are part of and what the current efforts of that coalition are. So Stop Climate Chaos is a, a network of NGOs from environment and development sectors. And we work together, we pool our resources essentially and work together on climate campaigning because it's, it's a complex area. There's a lot of different scientific and policy um, dimensions to it. And it's important that we kind of use our collective resources wisely. Um, so there's one or two organisations that play a leading role in this. But uh, the idea is that as a network, we, we, we pack a much higher punch than we would otherwise. We, we are much more effective and it strengthens our case to say that we have so many different organisations on board. So we have all the member organisations of the Irish Environmental Network, but we have leading development NGOs as well. So in the past few years, we've paid a lot of attention to the kind of national policy work. We would have uh, contributed a lot to all the consultations that have been ongoing around renewable energy, around climate policies and plans. Um, and also we, we were actively involved in the Citizens Assembly, which was a very important um, instrument. So in 2017, the government set up a citizens assembly to consider a range of topics, including climate change, and they met for two weekends to discuss climate change. So the Stop Climate Chaos was very, 
involved in behind the scenes there in kind of suggesting topics for that, making submissions to that, and then following up from that when the Joint Oireachtas Committee was established in making submissions and advising the policymakers on what to do. And a lot of that kind of work is a little bit more boring than, you know, putting uh, solar panels on schools and that kind of thing. It's it's more getting into the, the detail of what's needed to be done across a range of government departments. Um, so it's very important that the NGOs have the means to communicate these important messages, work with policymakers, politicians, and also government departments. So some of the key things that uh, Stop Climate Chaos has worked on are the, um, say, for example, we would have made a sub, uh, submission on the budget. We um, have been campaigning to keep fossil fuels in the ground. So we supported the, the bill that was proposed by Breed Smith to end offshore exploration. And there's interesting developments there now because in New York, the Taoiseach has just announced that uh, the government will stop offshore drilling for oil, not for gas, but for oil, which is uh, a, a little bit of progress, I suppose, although we have a lot, a, a long way to go. So we, we, we work on a, across a range of policy areas from agriculture to energy to home retrofitting to transport and of course the uh, electricity power generation sector as well um so we ha- we have a lot more technical contributions to make but those are really really important because you know it's it's great to get people out on the street campaigning for climate action but we have to get into specifics we have to get into the detail of the policies that are going to get us there and that's what that's what stop climate chaos does for the week that's in it maybe we can just conclude with the final question about all those people that we did see on the streets last Friday, does that give you reason to hope that we are going to be able to make all of the action that needs to come um, and that people will engage with more than just the protesting and actually ensure that they vote or that they um, become more active in more detailed ways that focus on policy? What's your view of, I suppose, the last week of action? Well, I, I, I'm with Greta Thunberg on this. I think change is coming whether we like it or not. It's coming because climate change is already happening. We've got over one degree of warming already locked into the system that's absorbed by the oceans and the atmosphere. And we're going to start to see much more severe weather effects. And um, these, these um, scientific warnings are frightening people. They're, they're scary because there's no sign that we're changing our ways. Our emissions are still increasing globally. They're not decreasing. Um, So until we start to see the emission curves turning the other direction, I think people have a a reason and a duty to be terrified. Um, I'm terrified. Um, But I think when we get out on the streets and work together in concerted ways, whatever way it is, it's Extinction Rebellion, it could be through one of the NGOs and Stop Climate Chaos, it could be through, you know, working with 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 political groups, our trade unions, working with whatever organisations people feel comfortable with. um, This is how we bring about change. Uh, Litigation is just one of many tools available to us. Um, But I think we're going to see not less activism, but more activism, because even if people are approaching the point of wondering whether it's worth it, the the actual climate changes, the storms, the flooding, the droughts, the severe effects, uh, they may not affect Ireland as much as other countries yet, but we don't know. Um, Certainly, you know, the prospects for the the Mediterranean area, North Africa and Eastern and Eastern Europe and Eastern Mediterranean are, are absolutely profoundly shocking. Those areas are looking at crop yield losses uh, that are absolutely dramatic. We will not be able to feed ourselves 
um, from those areas any, in the future. So, you know, the effects of climate change are going to start happening and that will drive people into some sort of political response. But it's absolutely vital that we don't set it up as a a way of scapegoating any particular group in society, that we stand together in solidarity with people who are poor and likely to suffer the effects more dramatically. And of course, poorer countries uh, who might even suffer the effects of climate change more severely. So we need to we need to sort of think about it in terms of solidarity and in terms of being brave enough to face into the difficult decisions that need to be taken. And um, but again, you know, there'll be some benefits too. We will have cleaner air, cleaner water. Um, and who can argue with that? Thank you so much, Sive. It's been really informative to speak to you today and we really appreciate you taking the time.